for all four violent felonies included in the FBI's crime index, murder, rape, robbery, and aggravated assault, was 2%. Detroit's rape rate was 0.05%. A 20% crime rate for any crime is unheard of, even in Africa's most brutal civil wars. And yet, despite an alleged campus sexual assault rate that is 400 times higher than Detroit's, female applicants are beating down the doors of selective colleges in record numbers. The consequences of this alleged tsunami of violence on American college campuses are dire, as Ms. Kaufman suggested. According to the White House Council on Women and Girls, quote, survivors of the alleged campus sexual assault epidemic often experience a lifetime of depression, chronic pain, diabetes, anxiety, eating disorders, and post-traumatic stress disorder. If there is evidence of such shell shock victims, it is being kept well hidden. Females graduate at 23% higher rates than their male counterparts, with more ambition, and go on to lead lucrative careers. Imagine that one in five college girls would merely have their, their cell phones stolen at, at knife point at some point during their college time. There would have been a wave of protective strategies that would have emerged. A 20% sexual assault rate should have sparked a mass movement to create alternative learning spaces for girls, such as single-sex schools. None of this has occurred because the campus rape epidemic doesn't exist. In the 1986 MIS survey that sparked the campus rape industry and that generated the one in five statistic, 73% of respondents whom the study characterized as rape victims said they hadn't been raped when asked the question directly. 42% of these supposed victims went on to have sex again with their alleged assailant. An inconceivable behavior in the case of actual rape. 65% of females whom a Department of Justice study from 2000 deemed completed rape victims said that they did not think that their experience was serious enough to report, nor did their alleged victimization result in physical or emotional injuries. 72% of alleged victims in a recent MIT survey said that their experience was not serious enough to report. These reactions are also inconceivable in the case of actual rape, the second most devastating crime after murder. So what is going on on college campuses? Not a rape epidemic, but a culture of drunken hookups with zero normative checks on promiscuous behavior in which girls drink themselves blotto precisely in order to lower their sexual inhibitions. A recent rape case at Occidental College, President Obama's semi-alma mater, illustrates what we are dealing with here. Around midnight on Saturday, uh, the complainant, Jane Doe, a college freshman, began her weekend drinking binge on Friday, September 6, 2013, and continued drinking into Saturday night. Around midnight on Saturday, she went to a party in the room of John Doe, another freshman whom she had just met. Jane removed her shirt while dancing with John and engaged in heavy petting on his bed, lying on top of him and grinding her hips. Jane's friends tried to get her back to his dorm, her own dorm room, but before she left, she gave John her cell phone number so that they could co coordinate their planned sexual tryst. 
Jane and John exchanged texts in which Jane asked John if he had a condom. He did. Before Jane left her own dorm room to return to John's, she texted a friend from back home, I'm going to have sex now. Jane walked down to John's room at approximately 1 a.m., knocked on his door, went in, took off her earrings, got undressed, performed oral sex, and had sexual intercourse with him. Shortly before 2 a.m., Jane got dressed and returned to her room and began texting her friend's messages with smiley face symbols. The next day, she texted John asking if she had left her earrings and belt in his room and asked to come by to pick them up. Like many alleged campus rape victims, it never occurred to Jane to think she'd been raped until she spoke with the Title IX investigators on campus. Now, I would submit that someone who texts a male asking if he has a condom, who conspires to have sex with him, who announces to a friend that she intends to have sex, who voluntarily goes to his room in order to have sex, who has sex through no act of coercion or force, on the male's part, is as voluntary and responsible an agent in that sex act as the male. And yet Occidental College, under pressure from the Obama administration to get its rape conviction numbers up, found John guilty of sexual assault and expelled him on the ground that though Jane's actions and statements seemed to indicate that she consented to sexual intercourse, John should have known that she was too incapacitated to consent. What do we have here but a return to a Victorian ethos in which the male is presumed the guardian of female safety? Jane and John were both very drunk. They both agreed to have sex. Why does the responsibility fall solely on the drunken John's shoulders to evaluate the mental capacities of his drunken partner and not vice versa? Why isn't Jane equally guilty of having sex with a partner who is too drunk to consent. The alleged campus rape epidemic could be stopped overnight if women's advocates sent a simple message to girls, don't get drunk and get into bed with a guy whom you barely know. Keep your clothes on and go home at night to your own bed. Let me propose a thought experiment. An unapprehended rapist has assaulted two students in the parking lot of a university's medical school at night, a crime rate representing 0.04% of the campus's female population. What would be the university's response? Would it plaster the area with posters warning females not to go to the parking lot alone at night until the rapist is caught? Or would its administrators remain silent about whether girls should continue to frequent that area of the campus because, quote, rape is never a woman's fault. The first option, of course. The university would warn females against frequenting the parking lot because student safety is the administrator's paramount concern, regardless of whether female students have a right to go to that dangerous area at night. But when I suggest to campus sexual assault administrators that they could stop the alleged rape pandemic immediately if they persuaded girls to exercise more prudence, I inevitably receive responses like the following, quote, I'm uncomfortable with the idea of recommending that females exercise more responsibility because rape is never a woman's fault, end quote. Now there are two possible reasons why campus administrators refuse to take the most efficacious means 
to end what they insist on calling campus rape. That is, by counseling temperance and prudence. Either administrators know in their heart of hearts that what is happening on campuses is not really rape, but something much more complex and compromised than criminal sexual assault, almost invariably involving mixed signals, ambiguity, and voluntarily, voluntary behavior on the female's parts. Or, and this possibility is too horrible to contemplate, these self-professed women's advocates really do believe that a drunken hookup is rape, and yet they are withholding from women the simplest, surest way to prevent being, quote, raped, simply in order to preserve the principle of male fault. The campus sex revolution has ended up in an utterly bizarre spot. It began with students demand to be free of any intrusive parietal oversight from college officials. Now, in a remarkable turnaround, the children of that revolution want colleges to actually write highly legalistic rules for sex that resemble nothing so much as a multi-lawyer draft contract for the sale and delivery of widgets, complete with the conditions for default. They demand the creation of Byzantine bureaucracies dedicated solely to overseeing sex, whose voyeuristic members will parse every kiss and every grope. I have news for girls and their supposed advocates. This is sex that we're talking about, the very realm of the irrational and the uncontrolled. See Ovid's Metamorphoses, Boccaccio's Decameron, and Euripides' The Bacchae, if those texts are still available. Maybe <laughs> 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 St. John's, last Norms of chivalry, courtship, and modesty once tried to channel this primal drive. With those conventions now demolished as sexist, females and males are on their own, and often at sea. A formalistic definition of consent, the current desiderata of campus sex bureaucrats, is hardly a sufficient substitute for traditional social checks on the sexual instinct, and will never be able to regulate the irrepressible and often conflicting emotions amount to intercourse. Much has been written about the egregious due process failings of campus sex tribunals. Mr. Lukianov will give us the gory details. Conservatives and a growing number of liberals are calling for more due process protections on campus. This is a second best solution, in my view, one that merely expands the feminist bureaucracy and the bizarre codependency between exhibitionist students and voyeuristic administrators. The solution to the alleged campus rape epidemic, in my view, is not more sex bureaucracy and legal process, but more personal responsibility and prudence. And while the legal risks regarding regretted sex are flagrantly stacked against male students, it's hard to shed a tear for them. They might not be guilty of rape, but they are almost certainly guilty of taking full advantage of the sexual caravansary on campus and of acting as boorishly as females will allow them to. Males are the main beneficiaries of no-commitment sex, for males and females are not equals on the sexual battlefield. While there may be few actual rape victims on college campuses, there are undoubtedly thousands of girls feeling confused, betrayed, and exploited by partners 
who leave their bed with no emotional pain whatsoever. If male students respond to the one-sided distribution of risk and responsibility by becoming sexual prudes, society will have suffered no loss whatsoever. <laughs> but don't count on the male libido to do anything so simple. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Seth Philanthropist from the U.S. Department of Education, or as I might be known, a 